may be seated. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they, may, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, good morning. Uh, we've got uh, a lot of our uh, boys and Southern students who are back, or it's your first time. If I didn't get to meet you out under the carport, uh, welcome to Oak Park. So we're, we're thankful to have you here. And the uh, rest of you, if you're first time guests, I didn't get a chance to meet you. I'd love to do so at the end of the service. I'll be standing out uh, in the breezeway and uh, would love to uh, put a face with the name if you've emailed us or reached out in some way or or if none of the above, would love to, to meet you if I haven't already had the opportunity. Well, this morning we're going to continue our series in living Christianly. What, is it, what does it mean to live Christianly in a world that uh, is seemingly um, changing quickly before our eyes? If we were just to take into account uh, 2020 alone, there's been a lot that's taken place uh, and, and things seem to be accelerating Quickly, uh, two Sundays ago, we opened up and, and looked in Genesis chapter 1 and, and particularly looked at what it means to be human, be made in the image of God. Well, how did God make us and, and what is our purpose here on earth? And then last Sunday, we looked at the church, a, a new humanity redeemed in Christ uh, who will not only live for uh, God now but in the life to come. Well, this Sunday, I want to focus on the family. And I think uh, that's because the family is an institution that is being undermined and attacked in our society. And you can see it really all over the place. And this is uh, no less true in a New York Times article that I uh, saw this week. Maybe you saw it as well. It was uh, an opinion piece written in favor of a new reproductive technology which would overturn, the article said, the family and heterosexuality as societal norms. Now, hopefully you, you listen to that quick, carefully. That it wasn't just that there would be uh, a, a, an openness to other forms of the family, which even those we would uh, oppose, but this was to say that the traditional family and heterosexuality would no longer even be the norm. Essentially, this technology 
would allow individuals to conceive a child with more than two people, upending uh, what we typically think of a family consisting of a man and a woman conceiving a child uh, between them. And so the article presents an example of a, of a single woman who could uh, conceive a child perhaps with her two best male friends. And then the result would be that this child would now have three parents genetically. And if you follow the logic of the article, and the article goes there, well, who would limit it to three? You could have four, five, six. You, you can go as, as many as you want. Somehow my phone got set. Is that my son who did that to me? Anyway, <clears throat> he likes to play with the alarms on the phone. Anyway, the logic of it, you could have lots of parents, and who's to limit it to two? And of course, the, the basis of this uh, technology is, uh, is to control the genetic makeup of the child, and it's often... Uh, postured and, and, and lifted up to, in order to eliminate hereditary diseases, but also on the positive side so that you can kind of make your wonder baby, if you will. You can kind of bring the best of, of every world and control uh, the genetic makeup of this child so that you, you know their, their personality, their intellect, their physical makeup. However, there's also an underlying moral uh, argument of this article a deeper motivation, if you will, and a motivation namely to dismantle any notion of what we would call the traditional family. I quote, once we no longer need the traditional family structure to create children, our need for that traditional family is likely to fade as well. Once we create new technologies for conception, we embrace them. Well, this is the type of moral shift that's been occurring. We, we're seeing these things no longer like the land of science fiction. This is becoming more real. It's where we have been seeing, and in all likelihood, we're going to continue to see a moral shift in our culture and occurring in our society. And it's this type of ideology that no longer says, well, we don't need the family. If that was the means by which you created children and we can do it another way, well, then who needs the family? That'd be great, that's what society thinks. Yet, that very thinking is what is destroying our society from the ground up. It's destroying the underpinning. And just like a house without a foundation cannot stand, so society without the foundation of the family cannot stand. And so we know that as people are, in this case, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, as Romans 1 tells us, we know that such suppression, that though for a season... Maybe for a glimmer, that there might be joy and happiness. We know that that is a fleeting joy, and it's not a lasting joy. In fact, we know that no human can find true and lasting happiness, human flourishing, apart from God's design for their life. We know that, and so this should cause us to grieve. We should grieve as we watch the world literally destroying itself from the inside out. However, with that being said, I don't want us to overlook what opportunity we also have. Because as the world continues to abandon and flee from any norm of God's biblical design, guess what? The church stands out stronger and brighter as the salt and light of the world. And merely just being a, a husband and a wife and, and children actually is going to stand out even more in this world and is going to give us great opportunity to give an answer for the hope that we have, right? As the basic building block of society continues to crumble, 
The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, continues to stand. It's going to remain that city on a hill, inviting the world to come in and see what it's like to live as true humans, and what God has designed and, and what hu- true human flourishing looks like. So with that in mind this morning, I want us to continue considering what it means to live Christianly in a world that's increasingly becoming hostile to God and his design. And in particular, I want us to see that the family, the family was instituted by God before the fall, that's a key point, as the foundation for every society. The family is. When we think of the church, the church actually is, is birthed after the after the fall, we even think of the state. The state doesn't come until Genesis 9. That's all after the fall. But the family was part of God's original design for humanity. And though I'm going to be primarily talking to uh, husbands and wives, guess what, boy students? I'm still talking to you, okay? And those of you who don't maybe fall into that category, I'm not married, maybe you're single or you're, you're widowed, These things still apply to you because what we're really talking about this morning is what does it mean to be a man and what does it mean to be a woman? And yes, those things take a particular shape in the family and a norm that we will see here in the text, but we're going to see that those characteristics that define a man from a woman and a woman from a man actually show themselves up in appropriate ways outside the family as well. And so don't check out, that's what I'm basically saying for those of you who may not fit mother-father role right now. And so to reiterate, you you don't have to be married to live a godly life and pleasing to the Lord. Jesus is the most perfect human being to ever walk the face of the earth. He was single, but here's something else to consider. He was also part of a family. He was a son. So all of us come from a family in some sense. We can even look at the Apostle Paul, who would be an example as well. But everyone here this morning, I want to see that the family is the primary training ground for learning what it means to be a man or a woman. And we want to support that in any and every way that we possibly can. And so to this end, and I'm going to put this up on the screen, here's my overall point that I want you to see this morning. I want us to reclaim God's beauty and design for the family, seeing the authority of the Father the love of the mother, and the obedience of the child as the threefold cord that binds society and sustains all relationships together. I think I read that a little differently than on the screen, but it's the same point. I want you to see that. The authority of the father, the love of the mother, and the obedience of the child are the three components that that hold the family together, but also is the training ground by which society is built from. Because you learn how to live with one another starting in this nursery known as the family. Well, this threefold relationship begins with the authority of the father. And when we consider the authority of the father, we need to think of this authority as expressed in the the man's responsibility to lead, provide, and protect his family. Those are kind of the, the headings or qualities or characteristics that I want you to lay hold of when you think about Manhood, and, and so by the way, those of you who, who aren't maybe husbands or fathers, these, these responsibilities to lead, provide, and protect, those urges, those senses are rightly wired into you as a man and should rightly flesh themselves out in appropriate ways 
outside of the home as well. Well, this authority is grounded in the creation narrative of Genesis 2, where God created Adam, we see in verse 7, forming him from the dust of the ground and breathing the breath of life into him. Now, as we consider Adam's creation and the Lord bringing him to life, there are some significant details in the text of Scripture that we need to recognize. Now, sometimes people come to this text and they say, you know, all these things about what it means to be a man or a woman, you know, they're all read into the text and there's nothing really here. It's just simple. Adam was made and then he brought the woman and and we don't need to press too much. But what I want you to understand is that, that Genesis 1 and 2 actually three as well, is like a seed. It's like an acorn in the scripture by which the rest of the pages draw it up and we see it grow up into this great giant tree. In fact, you'll see Jesus referring back to this passage. You'll see Paul referring back to the apostles. And so what I want to do is, is, is inject like a syringe and let's draw out the deep implications and truths that are in seed form here that flesh themselves out. And some of the things that we see is number one that that Adam was created first. Paul makes this point. When he's trying to to apply in the church the relationship between men and women, he he makes the note that Adam was created first, which means that's significant. It's not by accident. God had to design for it. It's also significant that when we speak of humanity, or if you look in in Genesis 1.27, so God created man. We think of that as mankind, but that's the word man, Adam in Hebrew which is where Adam's name comes from. There's significance that mankind is summarized in man and not woman. There's there's implications here for leadership. We also see that God gives Adam responsibility here in the text in in chapter 2, verses 18 and following. And what's his responsibility? He's given a responsibility to appropriately name the animals, but not only the naming them and appropriately giving them names that correspond with who they are. But we're going to see that he actually names the woman. He names her. Therefore, we're seeing this leadership component. It's also Adam who's given the command in verses 16 and 17, what? You can eat of any tree in the garden, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He is given to him. It is your responsibility here. And and so presumably, what is Adam to do? He's to then teach this to the woman who's coming. And he's to ensure that his family is living under the loving rule of God. He's expected to pass this on. And it's for this reason, in Genesis 3, after the fall occurs, that Adam is held responsible for the fall. And if you know the story, it's, it's Eve who's tempted. Eve seemingly sins first and then passes it on to her husband. Yet the Lord comes and holds Adam responsible. And even in the rest of the pages of Scripture, where do you find? You don't find all who are in Eve die, do you? You find all who are in Adam die. The curse of sin upon humanity is placed upon Adam. Why? Because he's the representative head of the home. That's what we're seeing here. And so husbands, men, guess what? You were created to lead. You were created to lead. 
Not in a domineering way, not in a heavy-handedness, but here's how you're to lead, as Jesus led. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life is a ransom for many. Guess what, brothers? We're called to lead in a way that we are the chief servants in our home or in society. We lead out in caring for others, in, in looking out for them. It is a sign of immaturity when you lack awareness of that. It's actually immaturity. When you're aloof, that's not being masculine, that's being dumb. Okay? No, men are aware because they're leaders and they're looking out for others. We see here that Adam's charge over the creation, that everything was given him good to eat. And he's charged then to keep the garden, verse 15. And to guard it. And he's obviously here in verse 18 to learn. He's not to do this alone. I'm going to flesh this out in a little bit. But as the leader, he's to secure provision. He's given all these resources. And there's a sense in which, as the leader, he's to provide for his family's needs. And this is implied even if you come down to chapter 3. And you look at the, at the curse that's put upon Adam as a result of the fall. Here's something else that's very significant. Notice here in the middle of verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you. He's held responsible. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. What's the Lord saying? Is he saying work is a curse? No. He's saying your work will be cursed. You're going to now work, and because you've abdicated your role, your primary sphere, which is labor, providing provision, now the creation that you were entrusted to exercise dominion over will rise up and fight you back through thorns and thistles. Adam's job was to evict that serpent, and he didn't do it. And so now that is sin. And, and here we see a distinction even between the man and the woman in, in, the, in, the, in the curses. We see a distinction of their primary responsibilities. Both receive curses in terms of the primary spheres and roles in which God has created them for. So the woman, notice she's not cursed in regards to work. That doesn't mean that she's got to bear with thorns and thistles as well. It does. You know, she has that. But her curse pertains to her primary, I use that word Specifically, her primary sphere, bringing forth children, the home. This is going to now work hard against you, whereas the man is primarily entrusted with supporting the family's needs. And so along these same lines, the man is to be the primary, not only leader, provider, but protector. And this is partly why men are typically stronger than women, right? Our, our physical physique is, is different than a woman's. Uh, even our voices are deeper, right? There, there's a reason for that. And, and there's higher levels of testosterone, which in the fall can cause a problem for us men, right? We can get a little carried away with our manliness, right? But that's because we're created to be protectors, 
One night, my wife and I came home from going out on a date. It was, it was night. We had the sitter there, and we're all kind of hanging out around the, the dinner table, talking, seeing how everything went. And my son, Andrew, said, looking out on the, the back porch, oh, look, there's a, a cat out on the porch. And in just a moment's time, I heard a blood-curdling scream from Sarah, it's a possum! And along with her, all the girls began high-stepping out, oh my! And you know what the boys did? Myself, Andrew, and Luke, we go to the door. And we open up the door, no, don't open the door! They're freaking out. Well, imagine if that was reversed. Come on, Chase, come on. You be, you're there, that, that babysitter would be like, man, let me revoke that man card from that guy. And I'm leading my son's high step and getting on the, on the, on the chairs. Go, go, Sarah, get the possum. You say, there's something wrong with that guy. Because men are meant to protect, Right? Here's something that, that, that is becoming more popular even among evangelicals that are trying to blur the distinction between men and women, particularly as it concerns masculinity and femininity. You're going to see books promoted and even uh, things promoted that say masculinity equals maleness and femininity equals femaleness. You might say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, it's limiting it to plumbing and biology and anatomy. It's saying that if I had have gotten up on the table and said, oh honey, get the possum, that would be masculine because I was doing it as a male. But everybody knows because they're made in the image of God, no, you were acting not masculine there if you did that. And you're forcing your wife to act masculine. And I want you to see that that is built in, ingrained in us who we are as humans because we know this to be true. Even though the world wants to say there are no distinctions and want to press us and the culture is pressing us and it's coming even into the church in ways to eliminate difference. I want you to know that that's not good for the home. That's not good for you. It's not freeing for the wife. It's putting her in situations that she wouldn't created to be in. Well, this is why Satan attacks in his scheme. He's crafty, chapter 3, and he tempts Eve instead of Adam. Why, why does he do this? Well, this isn't because Eve's more gullible, easily deceived, or weaker in her ability to make sound choices. That's not, that's not why he does that. But because he wants to reverse God's design. He wants to reverse the roles and Adam here is abdicating his responsibility to work and keep the garden. He should have evicted the serpent and crushed the serpent's head. But he stood by like a lump on a log just sitting there watching. That seems to be the impression. And so this serpent comes and begins challenging God's word and, and, and tempting his wife to disobey God's word. And Adam knows full well what God has told him. And he should have stepped in in his role. But he doesn't. And the serpent has him. So it looks like Eve's the one who fell first. No, Adam is. Because he, he abdicated his role as protector. Eve led and Adam followed. And 
And no way they would have thought that this would have led. This simple reversal, this Adam's passivity would have led to the fall and the devastation that we now see. And that's usually what it is. Oh, it's not a big deal. All these distinctions, they're just cultural uh, norms. They're, they're things from the Victorian area that we've just brought over. And then sometimes maybe that's true. But there is a message and a pull blur all the distinctions you possibly can. And that's Satan's design. But God's good, good design is that authority has been given to the man to lead, to provide, and protect his family. And I want you to see, I, I'm focusing on those principles because these principles they have flexibility. They're, they're dynamic and they transcend the culture in times. So what it means to be a man, even, yes, yeah, some of those things are culturally brought about. If we were in Haiti, things look a little bit different. But here's the deal. You know who the men are and you know who the women are. And the men are the leaders, providers, and protectors. But here's the deal. What is the, the law? What is the rule that guides all this? What's well, the rule of Christ? And what's the rule of Christ? It's the rule of love. And so men in this room, your love for the Lord your God produces in you a yearning, a longing. Yes, you're fallen. Yes, there are things that you are not, we are not perfect. <laughs> but there should be a longing to say, yes, I want to be that kind of man. Because I love you, Father. And I know your love for me is good. And as you know that love and you respond out of worship to strive to be the leader, provider, and protector, in whatever sphere that may look like, guess what? It bleeds and it becomes in the horizontal level your love for your neighbor, your wife, your children, the women in, in your classroom or in the workplace. There's a way you begin to treat them in appropriate ways that, that shows your masculinity. Well, family here is built on the authority of the father, but it's preserved by the love of the mother. Preserved by the love of the mother. Now, now, this isn't to suggest that husbands don't love and don't fill their home with love. They do. But we all know there is nothing like the mother's love, right? There's nothing like a mother's love. When we speak of the love of the mother, what I'm wanting to, to think about and, and draw your mind to is, is those Feminine qualities, which have been uniquely bestowed upon her as one made in God's image to assist her husband. As we saw just two weeks ago in the image of God, we saw both are the image of God fully, equally. And so here we, we're recognized that the woman is created as, as man's equal counterpart to, to balance him in carrying out the creation mandate. This is why in verse 18 it says, The Lord says, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Notice the man is not the helper fit for the woman. The woman's the helper fit for the man. There's significance there. These things just can't be flipped around. That's Genesis 3. And so the man was created to have a companion, we see. And the Lord wants... Adam not only to know this intellectually, but he wants him to know it experientially. And so what he does is he begins to bring all the animals to, to Adam to see what he would name them, right? And this isn't just flipping the coin. I got a, a, a 
you know, a list of names. I'm just going to throw them out there. No, he, he, he's to see, he's to study, he, and he's giving appropriate names that, that fit who these creatures are. And no doubt as he's beginning to do this, he's learning, okay, there, there's companions for each of these animals. There's counterparts, if you will. But by the time we get to the middle of verse 20, what do we see? But for Adam, there was not found a helper for, for him. There's sensing the Lord led him down a path to come and discover this and feel this tension, to feel a longing, to realize, oh, I am missing something. So as Adam begins to realize and experience this loneliness, the Lord puts him to sleep. Puts him in a deep sleep, and, and we know the text. He, he, he seemingly surgically removes one of his ribs. And I just imagine, you know, I think in the stories, I just think of like uh, operation. Maybe you just got a tweezer and you pulled out the bone. No, no, no. This is bloody, fleshy, tendons, all these things. Just imagine that. Taking it out, filling it back up with flesh, molding it like Play-Doh. Just, just all these things. The Lord does this. And you can imagine... The Lord fashions the woman, breathes the breath of life into her as well. Adam wakes up from his sleep and he begins to rub his eyes in. And he sees this beautiful woman. She's like, he's like, she's for me. That, that's, that's one of me. That's like me. That's, that's like one I've never seen before. And you see the poetic language that, that comes from, uh, in verse 23, she, at last, yes, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That's what I'm talking about, Lord. Finally, right? She shall be called woman, for she came from man. Is it in a sense of superiority to her? It is, it is a found an equal. I found a, a, a partner. As one pastor writes, the man perceives the woman not as his rival, but as his partner, not as a threat because of her equality with himself, but as the only one capable of fulfilling his longing within. What a beautiful picture. The woman is clearly equal, for she is of him. But here's the point that I want you to see. She's not a man. She's a woman. Yes, she's equal, but she is a woman. She's created suitably for him so as to be his helper. And so together in marriage, what is the purpose of marriage? Together they create a bond between them. So that they may help and support one another in all things belonging to this life and the life to come. If you're married, your job for your spouse is to help them live as a, as a fellow image bearer as God made them both in this life and prepare for the life to come. That's your goal and vice versa. And I'm not trying to get Sarah to be the man. And she's not trying to get me to be the woman. how does the wife uniquely serve the man as his helper? Well, there's lots of things that we could explore here, but time is limited. I want to focus on one that we most readily probably recognize, and that is through her nurture and her, or you might call it preservation. As man's counterpart, she holds the home together and makes it a beautiful place to live, doesn't she? All the time, Saturday. 
you know, we joke about the honey-do list. Why? Because they want to make it nice. They want to make it livable. I remember one of my friends in college, um, he would come home. Uh, he's my roommate. He'd come home, and he would be playing soccer, and he'd be dripping in sweat. And you know what he had on his bed? Nothing. No sheets, just bare mattress. You could see the body print from where he lay every, every day. You know what? He found himself a wife. And he's got sheets now, praise the Lord, okay? <laughs> There's something that, that the woman does, right? She's different. And you just think about the, the, who the man is and, and concerning his, his physical strength, the, maybe his commanding eyes, his booming voice. As compared to the woman, she's much more delicate, isn't she? Even, even when you touch her skin, she, she's smoother to the touch. Her voice is different. It's softer. Her demeanor is gentle. And so what I want you to see is where the man is strong, yes, the woman is weak. But where the woman is strong, the man is weak. You see that? They complement one another. And so they are essential to counterbalance each other in the home. And so in this way, generally speaking, the husband brings the fruits of his labor into the home, whereas the wife, what does she do? She distributes them to each one according to their needs. Why? Because she knows everybody much better. The husband gives where the wife receives. Yes, the husband conceives the child, but you know that child is intimately developed in the mother's womb, which has a unique relationship even outside of the womb, right? It's the father who provides the house, but the mother makes the home. She makes it a home. She knows how to preserve it. She knows how to keep the peace. How many times, dads, has your wife said, hey, you, you need to be gentle, you can't treat that one like you do this one and, and always bring in the correctives. She knows how to keep the peace. She knows the character of each one and, and perfectly knows how to meet each one's needs, know just how they like what they need, right? Qualities of a mature woman naturally then lead themselves to protecting little ones, tending to the sick, comforting sorrows, sobering the proud, and restraining the strong. How many times, husbands, has your wife had to restrain you? Say, hey, you need to cool it. She's a calming presence in your life. And in so doing, as the Proverbs write, her husband trusts her. Husbands trust her and her children rise up and bless her. There's something unique to the woman. One day, I was watching the kids and uh, trying to give Sarah just a little bit of relief, relief. She can go take a shower if she wants. All sorts of things that, you know, we, we, I take for granted probably. And uh, she was getting away and going to do uh, some things in the house, but organized to work on some projects that she wanted to. And I remember I, particularly having uh, one of my children, Lillian, uh, sitting next to me. We probably had a show on or a movie. And, and the other kids are playing. Everyone's under control. Well, somehow, unbeknownst to me, <laughs> Lily leaves the couch and I'm clueless. Sarah proceeds to tell me after the fact that at least for 10 minutes, she's, she's crying, Mommy, 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 trying to find Mommy in the house. She finally finds Sarah and she goes, Mommy. Sarah's like, yes. Can you get me a snack? <laughs> and Sarah's like, could your dad not get you a snack? I'm like, honey, she didn't ask. I would have gotten her a snack. But you can just see, some mommy snack, 
Mommy knows the snack. I don't even have to tell what snack it is. Mommy knows the snack. They don't even think about me, and I'm sitting right there. Something about that love of a mother, isn't there? And we all know it. We could go through story after story where we see those things, right? Mother cannot be replaced. There's another purpose in marriage, and that is also in terms of child rearing. In particular, that they may together expand the kingdom of God. And so the, the family requires the obedience of the child. And so if you come back to Genesis 2, you, you might say, well, there's no children here. We, we don't see that. Well, I'd argue they are there. Again, it's like other things. They're in seed form. And we have to draw it out. But you see in Genesis 1.28, as the Lord God blessed them and, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Well, that means children, right? Children are normally going to come. From a husband and wife, especially before the fall. But you can also see that this is implied in verse 24. Verse 24 begins with a therefore. And we know that this is drawing a conclusion to what has happened. And what has happened? There's been a union. There's been a marriage. There's been like a covenant and a bringing people together. There's a wedding. And so verse 24 summarizes the significance of what we have just read in the previous verses. And what have we read? A pattern, a norm that is being established. And what is that? A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. What is implied here and expounded throughout the rest of Scripture is that there's an expectation that there will be children in the home and one day they will leave, right? They will grow up to become mature humans, adults. And they will leave. Some of your parents are here today, and you're, you're seeing this reality as you've dropped off your kids, your last child for, for college. And the home's going to be different. Well, this was, this was grounded, as you know, in the scriptures, expecting them. And, and this is usually going to lead to marriage down the road. And so, therefore, in the home, under the leadership of the father and the love of the mother, guess what? Children learn what it means to be humans. Mature humans. Scripture tells us that, that foolishness is bound up in the child of heart. What is the, the purpose of, the, of discipline at home? To, 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 to run that foolishness out of them, right? Why? Because they don't know how to act. And so we train them. And so fathers, this is why you are given the responsibility to make sure your children, the Lord blesses you with them, are brought up in the discipline and instruction of the, of, of the Lord. That's in Ephesians 6.4. And children, this is why you are called to obey your parents, for this is right. It's right. It's what the Lord calls you to do. But guess what? It comes with the promise that you may live. Live both in this life and the life to come. It is for your best interest, children, McGee kids. It is for your best, Stuarts. It is for your best, Evener boys. Kelly, I'm not so worried about. <laughs> it's in your best interest to obey your parents. For this is right. Why is it right? Because this is God's design for the family. One of the signs of the latter days of the undoing of the world is children are disobedient to parents. And we think that's so whatever. Well, you can see what havoc is wrecked upon our society. Parents who did not instill discipline in their children have now become children 
not mature physically, but children in their minds, living in society, not knowing how to act. So parents specifically, you fathers, this clearly extends to the mothers, children obey your parents both, but the fathers are held responsible. You are entrusted with the stewardship to train up your children in the fear of the Lord so they may know what it means to be human, made in the image of God. And so this means that you need to be able to teach them what it means to be a man or a woman. You might think, well, that's, that's simple, that's basic. Well, it's not, it's not simple anymore. And so I want you to think about this thought experience. What are you going to do? And even if you're single here, you can maybe be thinking about this question about yourself. A little child comes to you and says, Mommy, Daddy, what does it mean to be a boy and not a girl? What are you going to say? Hopefully, first of all, you'll begin with an anatomy lesson that's appropriate for them. You can start that off early, foundations that have to be put in place. But hopefully, you're not just going to stop there because there is a difference between a boy and a girl beyond their anatomy. God has made them to be masculine and feminine. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be feminine? What does it mean to be masculine? And mom and dad, you need to be able to not only teach them but model it. But model it to them. Part of being human is knowing also how to worship, right? I have a creator. And I need to know how to live rightly before my God and live under his loving rule. So let me ask you, father and mother, if your children honor you, learn from you, and follow in your footsteps, will they know the Lord their God? Will they know him? Says why, fathers, you must make worship the primary or the priority of your home. Like worship, Sunday morning, your children shouldn't wonder. I wonder if we're going to church today. It's just no brainer. It's happening because that's what we do every Sunday. Or are you training them? Oh, you know what? When we had a movie late night Saturday, we were tired. It's normal to sleep in. Or hey, there's this big sports weekend. We're going to do that. Or you know what, we, we just find out that you know, we're, we're once every four weeks. Just so you know, you were training your children to know actually what happens here on Sunday morning doesn't matter. It doesn't. It doesn't matter what you tell them, they're watching what you do. And so husbands, how are you training? What are you prioritizing in your home? But if you think just bringing them to church is enough, that, that's not it. You are the primary discipler trainer in the home. And so you need to be teaching them the scriptures in your home, teaching them how to pray, teaching them how to sing. Do they learn how to sing from you? Teach them to love and find joy in the Lord. Or do they find the things of the word and the things of church as a punishment? Hopefully not. Please tell me you don't punish your children by saying you've got to memorize this verse because you disobeyed Ephesians 6.1. That's training your kids to think that the Lord is not for them, but he's a punishment. The Lord is joyful and loving. And we want to teach them that. This is actually assumed in the Proverbs. When the Proverbs speak to the children and say, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Why? For they are graceful garland to your head and pendants for your neck. Mom and dad, 
in your home, is there any teaching for your children to hear? And any instruction for them to heed that will lead them to eternal life? Because your job, the stewardship that's been entrusted to you, is to expand the kingdom of God by raising up children who fear him. So how might you do this? Well, there's lots of tools, resources. We try to equip you. There are resources in the library. There's discipleship classes when we're not having COVID that are dedicated to these things. But one thing that we have provided for you that comes in the weekly email, and on Mondays we'll send it out if you're a member, but you can get signed up, call the church office. We, we send out a home devotional guide. It's built off the sermon and the scripture text that are referenced. And, and yes, this thing is simple. It is read the scriptures, ask some simple questions. This isn't going to be an in-depth theological study on something. But it teaches you how to read the word, sing the word, pray the word. And more importantly, it gives you fathers who don't know how to do that with your children a tool to use so you can do that with your children. That you can sit with them at the dinner table, at the breakfast table. And you can take five to ten minutes, look up what's today. Let's read these passages. And then prayer prompts, the questions to ask, to stir this up. And guess what? Here's the trick of all these little tools that are given to parents to so-called be for their children. It actually trains you as well. <laughs> That's the dirty secret. It trains you. Our society, brothers and sisters, stands and falls on the health of families that make it up, right? Why is that? Because the Family is the most perfect and impressionable school for training a child. It is the school. You just determine whether it's a good school or not. It's no surprise then that the number one predictor of poverty and crime, you, you probably know this, is a broken home. It's a broken home. It's sad. It's awful. It should give us compassion when we see even the horrific things that are going on. We are seeing the fruit of broken homes. Children who do not know the right from the left. Well, as we consider our own, what, what is good for our own to perpetuate goodness to the next generation? Well, it's raising up our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But guess what? Even as we're thinking about the mission, as we're, we're sharing Christ with people, as we're bringing them into the family of God so that they can learn what it means to be a family. Repentance can take place. And yes, sometimes sin has gone so far that, that the home cannot be maybe repaired at the, at the fundamental level. But guess what? Even if you are here today, I want you to know that, that his mercy is more. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. You get brought into a whole family of brothers and sisters who can teach you and help you raise your children. And you can break that cycle of poverty and struggle that was in your life by raising up child to be a man and a woman and know what it means to leave and cleave and in one generation you can change real systemic problems you can do that and that's part of the mission that's the glory of God's design for the family and the church is a new humanity that teaches us how to live for him and live as human beings that's just the first step second step is also what does God call us to do in vocation and work? And, and so next Sunday, we're going to continue to look at what does it mean to be workers? What is God's calling on our life? What is the, the glory and beauty of honest work?
that God has blessed us with. So hope you'll come back next Sunday. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, what a wonderful gift you have given us in the family. Lord, the world does not realize the gifts. They have dishonored you and they do not give thanks to you as God. They have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. But Lord, may we not follow suit. May we be the city on the hill, the light of the world, the salt of the earth. It's attractive. They can see the beauty of the family and they see the loving leadership of a husband, loving care of the mother and the obedience of the children. They see the fruit of your design and say, I want Jesus. I want that for my life. And Lord, that they would find it here. We pray for our community that is being ravaged by the destruction of the family. Lord, may we be a place that they feel welcome, loved, cared for, so they may learn Christ here and have their lives changed forever for generations to come. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.